because this uh, might be the, the inner chronicle of what we are and we have to articulate ourselves, otherwise we would be cows in the field. Welcome to Cows in the Field. This is a show in which we discuss philosophical themes in popular films. My name is Justin. I'm Laura. And our film today is a masterpiece, if I do say so myself. The latest film from Alfonso Coran, Roma. We're joined today by my colleague at MIT, Augustine Rayo. Augustine is a professor of philosophy and dean of the School of Humanities, Arts, and Social Sciences at MIT. We are so glad you could join us. Welcome to the show, Augustine. I'm so pleased to be here. Thank you so much for inviting me. When we were talking, we wanted to have you on, and when we were talking about films, um, I think I might have known this before, but I, I'm not sure, but I learned that although you are a philosopher by training, when you were younger, you wanted to be a filmmaker. And I'm very curious, how did you get into wanting to make films in the first place? So it started because my dad bought a camcorder, you know, one of those big boxy 80s things. Um, and I use it to make, you know, little videos with my neighbors. And I got really into it. Like that, that was, it was the most important thing in my life. Uh, so I... You know, I, I like the craft of it. And then when I was a little bit older, so this is when, when I was a, when I was a kid, maybe when I was um, you know twelve or so. And when I was a little bit older, maybe sixteen, I I sort of discovered films and mm. uh, film festivals. And you know, I I was completely mesmerized, and and you know, in particular, I was mesmerized by uh, Tarkovsky's films. Um, Partly because they seemed just so beautiful. I, I, I think it was just partly the aesthetics of it that, mm. that drew me in. Um, and I happened to go to a high school that uh, was a college in the evenings. So they used the same classrooms and the same buildings. And as a result, they had a professional editing room. And I befriended the film instructor from the college and, and he would let me, you know, use, of course, nowadays you can just use any computer to edit. But in those days, you know, this was non-trivial equipment. So then I started upping my game, uh, you know, really trying to, to make better. And of course, in re retrospect, much more pretentious films. Were you, were you at that um, point shooting digitally or on film? Oh, no, no. Well, uh, um, yeah, this was all uh, digital on tape. Got it. Yeah. It was rough because, um, you know, you use one tape to for, for the for the shots. And then when you edited, that was like you went on a second tape and then like your master copy went on a third and then all your other copies uh, were fourth fourth copies. So, you know, <laughs> the quality was horrible. <laughs> So, you know, that's what I wanted to do. I, I just, I wanted to be a, a filmmaker. And, and and the reason I became a philosopher instead 
was that I, I was under the misimpression that um, philosophy made you deep. And, and you know, I, I, I wanted to make deep films like Tarkovsky. Mm. Uh, so I, so, you know, I, I thought learning philosophy was step one uh, in this, uh, in this plan. <laughs> now, so it was the plan yeah. to go to, to be, to learn everything via philosophy and then, and then take that into the, into film and be a filmmaker a second. Yeah, exactly. Okay. exactly. Okay. So I, I would, I would get a philosophy BA and then after that I would go to film school. Okay. And, okay. And, and become a director. Um, and, and I think that had I known about Guanon, I think he would have been exactly the kind of director I would have wanted to be. Yeah. I think he, he would have instantly been my hero. Mm. I feel like the the trajectory that you're describing is is Terrence Malick's, right? Because he, he did a BA, I think, in philosophy at Harvard and was actually doing postgraduate work in philosophy. And then he pivoted to, to do film. I don't know if he all along wanted to do film, but, um, but there are, you know, there are few and far between, but there are some instances of the philosopher filmmaker. Um, That's right. It's possible. Although I sort of undermined my own project because I, I hated most of my philosophy classes. You know, the, the only one I really liked was logic. So, you know, exactly the kind of class that <laughs> won't tend to make you a good film director. <laughs> Doesn't translate well to art film. We're still waiting for the, um, the big logic movie. I feel like the more you learn philosophy, the less able you are to communicate the really interesting philosophical ideas in something like film, because they're just the kinds of things which are very difficult to put, you know, because they're the kinds of things you want to say precisely and that's very difficult to do with sounds and images. and Yes, totally. But I think there's another problem, or at least another problem for me, which is that I'm the kind of philosopher who, you know, doesn't like things to be mysterious. So, you know, if, if someone presents an idea which is, is supposed to be, like, deep and mysterious and only the initiated can understand it and so forth, I, like, I immediately react to that and, and want to either show that there's a confusion some, somewhere or uh, presented in a clear way. And, and I think that that sort of ruined um, my ability to, you know, think of Tarkovsky-style plots, which, which are exactly that. Like, they're, they're, you know, exactly, you know, inscrutable and, and you know, they're, they're meant to be deep, but it's partly because it's, they're so unclear. So, so I think that, you know, in a way, philosophy... Uh, you know, destroyed the capacity for mystery that, that might have, you know, fueled uh, the kind of cinematic career I was hoping for. It's funny that the word that you came out with, Augustine, is mysterious. Because I feel like, and maybe Justin can correct me if I'm wrong, but we just we watched the Road to Roma Netflix little documentary um, yesterday, where Quaron talks a lot about uh, it is it's sort of we see behind the scenes footage, but it's really Quaron talking about his his experience making the movie, and he talked about how the thing he like admires most in film and what he's trying to do, and he doesn't he feels like Roma is maybe the first time he's really succeeded at it in some way is like capturing mystery. Right? Didn't he say hmm. he used the same word? I think, um, and like that's what sort of awes him about movies that have that mystery, where he's like, I can understand technically how they do it, and yet I can't understand how they do it. <laughs> um, and like that's the kind of movies that he wants to make. Oh, that's so interesting. That's so. So I have not seen that documentary, but it it reminds me of something that I really liked about 
Roma. Uh, and that I, I also liked about Tarkovsky, which was that in, in both cases, so in Roma and Tarkovsky films, the, the films are able to evoke in me this like very strong sense that I'm living a, in a dream. Mm. Like, I don't know exactly what it is. I, I don't know like how how they do that, how, how they pull that magic trick. But it's like there are things that I only feel in dreams and when I'm watching, when I'm watching certain films, including those. Mm. And, you know, there is something magical and mysterious about that. I, I, you know, I, I wonder where that's connected to what you're talking about. I think that's a big part of, I think that's right. And I think part of what is going on in um, films like this, but even more sort of abstract films about memory, like Tarkovsky, I mean, um, as well, Malik, we also mentioned a lot of these films reflecting, um, is that it's like a film, like, sorry, excuse me, like a dream. It's it's often more about the feeling than than like what is happening you know like it, it there's like a feeling that you associate with whatever images or sounds that are you're undergoing that is that like sticks with you and it like you know triggers something in you and and then you kind of get carried away by that feeling and that allows you to sort of fill in all of the you know what's happening or whatever and it's it's less about you know it's it's in many ways the exact opposite of analytic philosophy where we're just like pummeling you over and over again with <laughs> statements about what we're trying to say. It's it's you guys yeah. are making Flossy sound so fun. No, we love Flossy. <laughs> it's the best. It's just the opposite of this. <laughs> I think that's that that's totally right. And I think that um in, in the case of Roma, it's it's very clear how that works for me because you know the Mexico City it portrays is the Mexico City I, I grew up in. In, in many ways, it's a Mexico City that doesn't exist anymore. So, for example, one thing that's remarkable is that the sounds, particularly the, the, the street sounds in that film. You know, the first time I, I saw the film, when it came out, I felt like those are things I hadn't heard since I was a kid. And it's like it, it, it took me back. It, 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 it's... You know, it's it's like a smell. You know, the smell of your grandma's mm -hmm. room that you 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 haven't smelled in in decades, and 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 yet it's as if you were there. So so you know, I I think that's an instance of what you're saying that that it's it's it it it's not the content of the story. It's 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 you know how how Cuarón engages you with this story. Mm. That was one thing we just on the sound, and then I want to talk more about your specific experience. Um, the sound is is really. When we saw it at first, I th I think I think we saw it just just you know on like a laptop effectively, and it, and the the sound was was very muted in in that regard. And then this time we saw it, we saw it, you know, with actual surround sound. We watched it, you know, with surround sound, and and the sound is enveloping. It's it's really there's so much he's placing all of those little you know the street vendor sounds and and the 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 cars and everything. They're all around you and so you feel like a little bit like where the camera is placed which is often in the middle of the action mm -hmm. um uh in the middle of the scene you feel like you're there you're just right there and mm -hmm. and just as the camera is turning left and right like you could almost turn left and right and sort of see the scene and it, and it makes it feel like it makes it feel bigger than than i think 
than I think it might otherwise be. Um, of course, this isn't evoking anything particular for me because this was not my experience. But um, I'm curious then, Augustine, you know, um, growing up in Mexico City, I mean, was the circumstances in which you grew up similar to the ones that are portrayed in the film and the ones that I, I assume um, Alfonso Cuaron um, himself had? Very similar. Very, very. I mean, so similar that it's hard to see that film as anything other than biographical for me. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So, you know, the film, I think, takes place in 1971, or at any rate, early, early 70s. I was born in 1973. So, you know, a, a little later, but not too much later. Um, I grew up in a middle class home, very much like the one portrayed in the in the film. Uh, like the family in that film, we had domestic employees. Um, you know, with with all the complexities portrayed in the film. Uh, like the children in the film, uh, my my parents separated. It was a, a failed uh, marriage. My, my mother had to reinvent herself, very much like uh, the mother in the film. You know, it it, it 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 just it just feels like the story of my of my childhood. When you watch it, then I mean, was did was it challenging? Was it difficult to watch in that regard, or was it perhaps you know the opposite in a way? Because it was if it was liberating seeing your experience reflected with such um, you know, and not just your experience, but of course this experience of the uh you know the the domestic employees and so on um i'm just curious like what how did that feel watching it and and you know from today because because one of the aspects of the film is is it's koran clearly today looking back on his own experience trying to contextualize it not apologizing but very much trying to understand it and um and appreciate things that he himself wasn't able to appreciate at the time i mean watching that film for me is so many things at once so many things at once. So one thing that's foregrounded in 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 the film is is you know the relationship between middle class families and, and their domestic employees. Uh and and you know what happens when you're a kid, a middle class kid growing up in Mexico is that all that dynamic is invisible to you. Mm -hmm. Invisible. It just it, that just seems like you know, the way the world is, it couldn't be any other way. Yeah. I don't know, I speak for myself, but I did not see the injustice until many years later. And, and it only became really, really evident once I left Mexico and started living in the U.S. and then went back. Mm -hmm. Like, it's when I go back now that it's also obvious. So, you know, one thing that that makes it very hard to watch is to you know, just see that dynamic of injustice and know that, you know, I cannot extricate my life from that. Yeah. You know, I, I, I am a product of that unjust system. And, you know, that, that's, it's, it's very hard to, to see that. Yeah. But I think that something that happens with the film at the same time is that it, it's not just like an intellectual experience um, for me. So, I mean, go, going back to the um, to the street sounds or, or, you know, just the, 
you know, items around the house or, you know, the things people eat, it, it's, it's all so perfectly done that it's, it's, it's very hard to not, you know, just have a visceral reaction of, of like, you know, just somehow being back in my childhood. Um, you know, one, one thing that I, I, I kept discovering myself doing was, um, trying to smell the the smells mm-hmm. of of you know the the street and in the the home and because it it really was being uh you know just a very visceral experience it, it, it's it's like I was there so you know why can't I smell these things <laughs> <laughs> yes I no I mean I think that I think that you know it I can imagine how incredibly difficult this movie would be to watch but at the same time how um how you know powerful and overwhelming it is because it's i imagine it, it just evokes an immense amount of nostalgia for this period of your life and for you know that place and time um you know one of the things that i i think we we agree on we talked a little bit before about this before is and i think this ties into the the way in which the film is simultaneously uh, a memory piece, but all from the perspective of today, is with the black and white cinematography. Mm-hmm. And um, now, Quaron is an interesting guy and in, in director in that he has been, he's never been the principal director of photography for his own movies until this one, but he has been, he has like a signature to his look of his films. And one of those signatures is wide angle lenses as i and then with the camera often in the middle of the action moving rather than cutting he likes to move the camera um you see this in so he directed harry the the third harry potter film the prisoner of azkaban which is in our opinion the best of the of of the film yeah and you see this early on in that film where there's like a very perfunctory straightforward scene at the early on where two characters are talking and normally that would be done with cuts there would be one shot and then cut shot the other guy but he sticks the camera in the middle and moves it back and forth pivots it back and forth a lot like what he's doing in this film moving it back and forth and i think that here though he in those earlier films he's doing it with handheld so the camera's being held by somebody they're moving around so it's very kind of shaky and destabilizing here the camera is totally locked down it, if it's moving, it's moving on a track, and if it's stationary, it's panning, but it's panning very smoothly. It's it's almost ghost like in mm-hmm. its movement, like it's like a spirit who's gone back, like a time traveler who's gone back, but it's just sort of observing the space in the you know right. in the middle of the action, kind of looking around, like um, Ebenezer Scrooge going back to his Christmas's past. Exactly, or <laughs> exactly. <laughs> but then the other aspect of it, which is I think really really interesting, is that. It's simultaneously black and white, so it has a nostalgic feel, right? I mean, this, you know, not that black and white in 1971, I mean, that still would have been an aesthetic choice in 1971, but nonetheless, we, we associate with black and white the old days. Mm-hmm. But it's not black and white film, it's large format digital black and white. So this makes it look, everything looks super crisp, no grain. The sensor size is huge. It's the size of a 70 millimeter, um, the sensor is the size of a 70 millimeter film uh, print. Um, so it's it's massive. It's bigger than a 35 millimeter film, uh, you know, grab. And as a result, there's very little grain. There's massive amounts of dynamic range. So you get this very soft fall off of the light. 
but everything is super sharp because it's digital. And that's a look that just does not look like anything we've seen in, in like the history of human, you know, video cameras effectively, right. Or film cameras for that matter. Cause film is, you get soft light fall off, but it's soft. There's not that much sharpness in film and digital is super sharp, but often it doesn't have that, sh- that soft light fall off. So you, this is something totally different. It's simultaneously modern and old. And I think that's the idea he's trying to get at is like this reflection from today, the modern looking back nostalgically on the on the old. And it allows him to have some distance from it mm-hmm. and present the stuff with the distance. And yet most of the like this documentary watched was him explaining how he wanted every detail in the frame to be pre- exactly right. So everything had to be periods correct and he recreated streets like they rebuilt entire streets to film on and and i and so i mean yeah it has these two dimensions simultaneously right he also talked a lot about how how he wanted the film to sort of like how the camera movement to feel objective as you said like sort of ghost-like in its movements not personal he didn't want to do close-ups which are you know often evocative of emotion but yeah this is like how can this movie be anything but so subjective when every single detail as we learned from this from Quaron talking about it is like is only living in his head like it, it's not just like we want everything to be period but it was like we have to go back and see the picture and this has to be this bridal shop on this corner with this dress and the display exactly as it was when I was 10. <laughs> it's so it's so interesting I you know I, I didn't leave the film noticing all the things that the two of you were, were talking about. I mean, it, it all rings true. Um, I, I, you know, I guess that the photography did two things for me. So, so one thing is, you know, I just thought it was extraordinarily beautiful. I, mm-hmm. I think that there are, you know, compositions that you can do in black and white that don't work in color. And and I, I just thought that, you know, he, he took wonderful advantage of that. And the second thing, it's it's kind of subtle, but but it was important for me. And it's that Mexico City is horribly polluted now, but it wasn't so polluted when I was a kid. So you know, there's this there's this feeling of like the city that was uh, stolen away from us mm-hmm. by pollution. Interesting. And some of the scenes, in particular, there's some scenes where you can see um, the, the 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 Valley of Mexico. Uh, with uh, you know native vegetation, a bunch of cacti, uh, uh, not much else. That you know that's that's like the Mexico City that never was, and 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 I think that the you know the the, the crispness of of the the format and maybe the the transparency of the format in the sense that um, you don't have you know distortions introduced by the uh, cinematography that, that are like polluting your vision yep. mm-hmm. uh, uh you know that, that that brought to mind that mexico that never was right that's yeah a clarity and a cleanness to it's it. a clean yes. yeah, yeah. Exactly. The, the image is exactly. clean yeah. and it evokes it, sorry evokes cleanliness in in some ways um yeah the other aspect of the cinematography that i think is i think crucial and 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 i think um this has to be intentional. I, I'm actually, you know, Karan didn't talk about it in the documentary, but it, I think it just feels so intentional. It's, so every shot, first of all, he doesn't cut very much. There's lots of long takes, but then also wide angles. So you get a lot in every frame. You're seeing, you know, 
Cleo and she's running and then you see everything else around her. You see all of the shop work, you know, the, the people doing stuff in the shops and or you see a scene that, you know, is a slight tracking shot where you start with um, people, uh, you know, when they're when they go visit Don Julio at the I don't know, at this like farm or whatever farmhouse and and they're all drinking and then it slowly pans and they're shooting guns and then it pans over to what they're shooting and you just get this slow track and as more and more context and detail, everything is sort of being, you know, given to you. Um, and I think what's going on in these uh, sequences is the foreground and the background are equally important. So um, the the foreground might be Cleo and her needing to find the children. But the background because it's not a close up on her you're seeing as all the background so you you kind of you can your eyes can wander away from her and to the shopkeepers um and back um and um and this is like it's just a motif that's constantly coming back like uh you know the scene when they're going when they take Cleo to go get the um the crib and and you know there's some protesting happening and you're like okay that's interesting he's sort of showing us this protesting and then Later, you know, as we're in the shop, they, you know, eventually the protest erupts into chaos, and and you know, and it's the 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 Corpus was the Corpus Christi massacre is mm -hmm. is happening, and and so we, again, it's it's this background thing is shown to be as important as the foreground and vice versa, and I think that theme is so important to Coron because um, he's telling the story of a person and of people who are I think fundamentally backgrounded. There are people who. Uh, who kind of work and live in the background. Um, uh, and they were in the background in his life. He, he as a child, like yourself, Augustine, didn't, didn't think of them in, in foregrounded terms. Um, yes. And they, uh, and he wants to foreground that what was once background. He wants to foreground Cleo's story. But at the same time, he wants to contextualize it. So he has to give us all that background as well surrounding it. And so these, it's like, that's to me what, is one of the most interesting things of the film is the interplay between these two dynamics. And I think if he had shot this conventionally, which would have mostly been with cuts and with often with long lenses. So you, long lens, you get just a little bit in the frame. You just get like mm -hmm. Cleo and there she is. That's the person we're focusing on. We don't really need all that background. Uh, that's how it would normally be done. Um, uh, it, you would lose all of that power of that theme that he's trying to sort of, um, you know, bring out. I love that point. I, I, I love that point. In, in a way, it summarizes what he's doing because, you know, it's it's obviously a very intimate film. So, you know, it's it's based on, on you know, his memories. But he, he wants to foreground something that was in the background, as you're saying. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, he, he achieves that in this very uh, concrete way. I mean, these long, these very long takes, they, they did, they also did something very interesting for me, at least which is that, you know, different countries have different acting styles. And, you know, this, this acting, it, it's always stylized. It's just that if that's the acting you're used to, uh, you, you don't see it as stylized. Mm -hmm. you, you, it, just, it just seems normal yeah. to you. Yeah. You know, it, 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 I think it becomes evident when, when you see acting from uh, a place you're not very used to, then, you know, it all seems weird and stylized. And, and, and one thing that's very interesting about this film is that the acting does not 
in all cases correspond to the standard Mexican stylizing of acting. Mm. So, so that's certainly true of Cleo, and it's also true of the grandmother. Um, and it is also it's also true of the medical staff in in the uh, in, in the stillbirth uh, scene. Mm. Certainly, nobody's overacting. Um, and, and and you know, it for me that just like it 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 rings true. Like that, it it feels to me like that's what real life is like. But I think that the the long scenes also seem to bring out for me, you know, just what a tour de force it was, you know, on the part of the director, but also on the part of the actors mm-hmm. who were doing that. Like it, it, it seemed remarkable for actors who seemed to, you know, just be living that reality uh, temporarily, uh, but but living it as opposed to, you know, just performing an art that they learned in school and being able to do it uninterruptedly. Yeah. Uh, in, 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 you know, in some cases, you know, just carrying this enormous emotional load, it, it, it just seemed remarkable. It, it's like, a, I'm not used to seeing acting of that quality. And, and, and again, n- not because they've perfected a certain art, but because they, they've they've carried that burden and, mm. and and shared it with the audience. Yeah, yeah. I think yeah. Naturalistic is is one word to maybe describe it. But it's worth yeah. noting that that uh, Yelisa Aparicio, who plays Cleo, was not an actor. So she's a non professional actor who was a, was t- learn, studying to become a school teacher. Um, and um, the interestingly, you noted the um, in the the stillbirth scene apparently. All of the doctors and nurses were real doctors and nurses, not actors. Doctors and, and nurses who do that specific and who do that specific procedure. Wow. Procedure. Yeah. And he, he I did not know that. He choreographed it with them, so he would ask them, like, "What what would you do here? Like, let's just do it exactly the way you would do it." And the, yeah. uh, and the last thing, this is, I mean, Augustine, just you picked up on, I think, exactly what Koran wanted you to pick up on. The last thing, which is now I want, this is like kind almost exploitative, but he did not tell Yelitsa Aparicio that the baby would be born um, at stillbirth. Oh my God. So he, t- she thought that it would, they were going to have like a real a baby, baby under yeah. the, the gurney and that she would get to like, and so she, and it was done one take and one take only. The take you see in the film is, I guess, the take they shot. And she didn't know that. And so in these in this little documentary we watched, at the end of they show them filming this, and at the end of the scene, there's no cut. He just goes over and hugs her. Like she's she's crying. She's still crying. She's genuinely crying because she she didn't know that that's a genuine reaction. And I was I mean, it is, I think, almost exploitative, but at the same time, for me, that's one of the most powerful moments in the film. Um I mean, I think it, it might just be because of, you know, the content of, but I mean, it's handled with a lot of care. And, and of course, everything feels genuine. There's nothing, mm-hmm. st- you know, you know, forced about it. But um, I watched that scene for the first time pregnant, <laughs> which I didn't know. And so but that was it was much Justin was like, Is, are you going to be able to handle this second time around? And I was it was it was much worse when pregnant than 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 afterwards. Just for me, it's worse after it's worse. after. It's, I was it's just worse after just. Yeah. 
terrified of labor totally. in that moment yeah. and, so, and like all the bad outcomes. Um, but now, now that you like what have you've held a held baby, the baby yeah. right after that's like, that was like an incredible, like, you know, I'm not, I have pretty, you know, as we've established on this podcast, my heart is made of stone, Yeah. but that moment melted my heart. Yeah. And, and, and so watching, you know, just thinking about that, how, you know, you've had a relationship with this, with this being for nine months and then, you know, to, yeah, I mean, it's just, I know there's a moment when she walks downstairs after like when the next scene where we see her back at home and she's kind of just staring in the distance and Adela is like, you know, kind of get it together. We got to You got to come and get something. And she holds her stomach. And I, I, that hit me a lot more now that I've, you know, been through labor where I was like, oh yeah, like she's, she's not going to be okay for many, many weeks to come, uh, physically as well as emotionally. And also like after I had a baby, I kept like, anytime there was a little like bubble in my tummy, I thought it was a kick in that I remembered the baby's out (laughs) because you do get used to this thing inside of you, however you feel about it. However, Cleo felt about this life inside of her and whether or not she was ready for it or wanted it at that moment in her life. Like, you know, you live with this thing punching you and kicking and fluttering around. And, um, yeah, it's, uh, that was that little touch to her stomach when she walked down the stairs was like heart wrenching for me. And I did not notice it the first time around. Just, I didn't have like the, the context for it. One other thing I wanted to say about like the large format and also the long takes was um, when we did the when we did our episode on Children of Men, we talked a lot about art because art and art history is very foregrounded in that movie. Children of Men by Alfonso Cuarón. By Cuarón, yeah. you know, there's there's a prominent he uses artworks prominently in that movie in most I think most um, most uh, importantly Guernica, um, but I was thinking um, about about murals a little bit too, um, with the choice to have a very large format where there's so much activity. And, um, I think also because of maybe because of the crispness of the, of the, um, of the, of the digital, it kind of compresses too. So it really doesn't feel like there's things very far in the background and very close to the back. The things in the background are clear as well, oftentimes as they yeah. are in the foreground. And it feels like you like you might see in a mural where you're not really using aerial perspective in the same way. And you have figures all up and down, kind of all on the same plane. And then also when you look at a mural and, you know, I've, I have yet to go to Mexico City and there are so many beautiful murals uh, that I know about but have not seen in Mexico City. Um, and the way I have seen them is through series of photographs because you cannot see the whole thing at once. <laughs> it's too large. And in order to really look at a mural, you have to move your head or, slowly or back up. Or back or, up. Yeah, exactly. But you also, like I was thinking yeah. about the way he pans through a scene like when they're shooting at the Hacienda, that kind of feels like when you're mo- moving slowly through a mural trying to take in all of the figures and how they're interacting with one another. Um, and I don't know if that was at all in his mind, but I, when I think about 20th century Mexican art, I think about murals. It feels like, um, something sort of like very characteristic to Mexico in particular. Um, and, um, and there's very little, um, you know, close-ups or portraits in this, in this, um, Manola Darkus noted that she actually, which made me, got me thinking about her art, art history and art. She called the, the way that we see the father for the first time, a cubist portrait is how she described it. Cause we're just getting little snippets of his cigarette and his knuckles and, you know, him turning the dial on the radio, but we, that's, 
feels like a very different moment in that movie um, compared to how he films everything else. I love the point about uh, murals. I, I, I think there are particular scenes that, that seem really muralistic to me. I think you're right. Um, it, partly because in some scenes, there's just so much going on. Yeah. <laughs> so so I think, you know, one one scene that's like that is the, the shooting scene at the Hacienda that Justin mentioned. And I think another is the is, is the scene where they're putting, they're putting out the fire. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, it, it's like, you know, as, as the camera hands, you, you just get to meet, you know, more and more characters and, and also like see more and more perspectives. So for, for the fire scene, what, you know, again, so much going on, but um, one thing you get to see towards the end is how the children are, are living through that experience and how, Cleo and others are like creating a, a little safe version of the putting out the fire for them. Uh-huh. Where, you know, they're, they're being asked to, to, you know, put out little fires. Right. Um, so it's, it's kind of like a mural that, that, you know, you, you, you look at some detail and, and then, you know, there's this mini story uh, within that, uh, within that detail. I like that. I'll give you one more, which is when Cleo goes, she's trying to seek out, uh, Fermin and oh, yes. she goes and there that there's like a I think some guy running for political office or something in the in the background he's you hear him announcing his candidacy or whatever and then he gets into a cannon and he's shot out of the cannon <laughs> you know and and yes. just that you get one of these it's a almost a surreal shot of like there's so much happening she just got off a bus there's all these other people there's a little kid with a bag on his head I didn't even notice that. Yeah, he's like ready to go. I think it's like it. I mean, it, it feels like the astronaut suit, except for that we're in a smaller village, so he doesn't have an astronaut suit. He's got a bag on his head, but he's an astronaut too, you know. And he's running around and yep. the same as the other kids. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I was, Carmen was wondering about that. Carmen noticed that that there's that kid who who's poor, but also one of the children in the in in, in the family who also dressed like an astronaut, yeah. and, <laughs> and you know she 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 was intrigued by that by that connection. I think maybe we we have different eyes now that we're that we have little children looking out for the kids. (laughs) I mean, I have a hypothesis. So, so we initially thought that it that Quaron's surrogate character was the youngest Pepe, because he seems to have the strongest relationship with Cleo. So I just assumed, but he's also a little storyteller. He's a little storyteller, yeah. Right? When he was older, he was a sailor. Yeah. He. He he reminds us of our own child who just makes up crap all day, and it makes no sense. Um, but 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 in fact, but okay. But uh, according to IMDb trivia, Koran's surrogate character is Paco. Oh, the bo- one, the sensitive one. Yeah, the middle child, right? Oh, yeah. he's the one who's always crying. Yeah, <laughs> oh. and, and if I, if I'm right, I'm because I, I think Paco might have been the one who's wearing the astronaut suit. Oh, okay. Who, I'm not sure which. We also see them in the movie theater yeah. watching the. I don't forget which movie it is, but it's some movie with astronauts. And of course, Quran did. That's his gravity. gravity yeah. That's his gravity, and that's his nod to his. Presumably, he he saw that film in theaters and was you know and kind of carried it with him. And yeah, to, well, maybe yeah. he's like the one who's looking out for Mexico City. Like there was also so many moments of looking up at the airplanes, at the planes, yeah. right? So he's you know he's he's obviously he's little. His this his world is his world. But he's maybe the one who's thinking about has, the skies, outer space, other parts of, you know, beyond beyond his home. Yeah. One thing that was really powerful for me watching the film is that 
you know, of course, that stillbirth scene is, is you know, extraordinarily painful. But I think that, like Cleo, I sort of didn't want her to have a child mm. because, you know, I, I it just worries about what the life of that child is going to be, and, and also what's going to happen to Cleo. If, if if she 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 brings she brings home a child, yeah, and and you know to me that made the the scene at the beach where Leo is is able to externalize that, you know, especially powerful because it it felt like it, it you know it brought everything together for me. It, it, mm-hmm. it like closed the emotion the emotional circle of of like my own experience of the film. I think one could one could take a straw poll on which is the most emotionally devastating moment of the film and and it, you would have like a dead heat between that moment and the moment when she can sort of makes that confession to yeah. the huddled uh, children who she's just saved that um you know sobbing that she didn't want the child and and, and sort of revealing to us that it's it was more than just the losing of her child that's upsetting to her but the guilt that she carries with her of not wanting it and i mean i just it's got right i mean i find yeah. that i just i mean yeah but i think as viewers we too yeah like augustine feel like i mean i obviously that scene is wrenching but you're also like okay well that you know at least <laughs> because at least we don't have to. Co- her life is not more complicated in the sense that, like, all throughout when she's pregnant and her and her employers, are like, we support you, we'll take you to the doctor, yeah. we'll buy you a crib. I'm still thinking, like, but what's the plan? How is this going to be? Totally. Is she going to live upstairs with Adela and the baby? And how can she be expected to do all of the things that the family will 100% expect her to do with the baby? Like, it it that it does not it does not seemed like it's going to end well, you know, and that's really totally. scary. It, and it does speak to like that sort of strange place she is in their family where she's taken care of by them, but she's not their family. That's right. It's, it's an, imp- she's in an impossible situation. And I think that's part of the injustice that, you know, Augustine was talking about is, is that, you know, she's not able to make choices like this. So she's sort of in some ways forced to, not want this to want this child not to be in a way um and then when that's granted to her she now has to like live with the guilt of like it coming Mm -hmm. to be i mean and i just think it's it's brutal because it's not like it was a you know she had much choice in the situation as you're saying augustine i mean it was you know the situation that she was in sort of dictated that this would was you know that if she was rational that's what she would desire but um it's just a horrible thing to desire the, the, the you know, that your child. No, and as you say, with. just very, very limited choices. Yeah. You know, very, very little. That, that, I mean, it could have been worse had she not shared the information with her yeah. employer or if the employer had reacted differently. Yeah. Um, but very, very limited. The, the, there was another scene that was, um, devastating for me but i think that's just to do with you know how related to my own experience that that's um a scene when they 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 come back from the beach and you know first you know they're horrified to see that the father has taken all the furniture but then you know they get kind of excited about their new room assignments and there's a moment of happiness and 
I forget the details, but it's something like there's this moment of tenderness between one of the children and Cleo, something like, oh, we love you or so. And then it's followed by, can you bring me a banana smoothie? Mm-hmm. I think for me, that brought back the complexity of, of being a child in that situation where, you know, the, you know, there really is love there. I, you know, just speaking for myself, I think yeah. that, that there's, there's no question that you love someone who, you know, brought you up and, and, and who's, you know, given you so much and, 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 you know, provided so much emotional support and so much love. Um, but it's, it's mixed together with this employee employer situation and, and, you know, an extremely abusive one, you know, one, one where the, the employee basically has no rights. I mean, one where the employee can be fired at any moment for any reason with no compensation of any kind, you know, just on the street. So, you know, just, just a reminder of, of that aspect of my childhood uh, was very, very painful. Yeah, that that dynamic, I think, is one of the other most interesting features of the film, how um, honestly it's portrayed. I mean, another example of that is um, uh, there, the, 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 when the father comes home, they, they all end up on the couch watching TV together, mm-hmm. and Cleo's sort of cleaning up, but then she kind of comes in and is snuggling with uh, Pepe. And then... Uh, the mom says, uh, Cleo, can you get the doctor some tea? And and the yeah. kids are like, no, no, we're snuggling. And and she's like, oh, you, she'll come back and snuggle with you, but go get her some tea and go get her the tea. <laughs> the and you know, it's that remind that, that just like, wait, she's she's sort of in that moment and we linger on it, a part of the family. She's there in the tableau hugging the kid, you know, and you if you were just seeing it from the outside, you'd be like, yeah, there's just another member of the family that's auntie Cleo, oh wait, nope, she's not. She's an employee. Go get this for us. And that dynamic and and how we how the film, you know, I think honestly portrays the complexities of the dynamic is is one of, you know, its its absolute strengths, how it doesn't shy away from it because it's it is complicated, but it is real. I mean, and so the other, like, I think really interesting aspect of this to me is the how there's a parallel setup between Cleo and Sophia, the mom. Mm-hmm. Both are women who are s- sort of thrown away by their men, by the men in their lives. Um, abandoned, if you will. Abandoned is a better word. They're both abandoned um, in moments of, um, you know, of, of genuine need. Um, and um, I think they, what's interesting to me is that the two seem to forge a kind of common bond over this especially in the in that moment in the beach but of course we're all we're we're just consistently reminded that that it is shot through with that transactional aspect of their relationship and that they can never really have the same kind of common cause because one will always be subordinate to the other um but i think like by setting up that parallel between the two it's like Quran is like inviting us to to like experience the world as if they are, you know, sisters in arms against these these 
bastards who, you know, like for me, what a jerk. Um, but like, and yet they're not, you know, and I love no, that exactly. contradiction. And yet they're not. That's the thing. And yet they're not. And I think it goes deeper than, than just an employee-employer relationship. I, I think that, um, is it uh, Sophia? I can't remember the I name. I think Sophia, yeah. Um, she, she doesn't really let Cleo in. She She's in some ways kind to her. I mean, she's really kinder than other people in her position. But she never lets her in. She 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 never treats her as as a peer ever. So they they might have become partners uh, of some kind, but they don't. They don't. And and I, and in some ways, I think the film is suggesting they can't. I mean, this is the 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 trend. You know, this this division between them is is the gulf is too wide. So even the fact that they've gone had these similar experiences, it will not be able to bridge that gulf. I think that's that's quite interesting. I mean. Um, you know, related to this, I think in some ways, and I think, um, another aspect of where incredibly important information and like, in some ways, you know, broadly more important than anything that's specifically happening in the film that's backgrounded, this is information that's backgrounded, is the relationship between the, the sort of descendants of the colonialists who who came to Mexico and the indigenous people of which, you know, we're seeing that divide between the family and the, and, and Cleo, but, but you, but you, you hear little glimpses of it throughout the film. Like Cleo's friend tells her, she's like, you should talk to your mom. Her village just got like annexed by the government. They just took over the, they just took the land from them. And 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 Cleo's like, oh, okay, yeah, yeah. But then she, you know, life goes on. Like this is just a, it's just dropped in there as like background information. Um, and I think it's, you know, it's really it's interesting to me that Quran, you know, he puts it there, so he he wants to have it there in the film, but it's 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 totally, you know, in the background. It, another example of this is like with with Don Don Julio, right? Because he. Uh, Laura was pointing this out, like to me, like like I'm not sure if I mean we we infer that that he's constantly being poisoned or attempted to be poisoned by like the the migrant workers. Well, the dog is not the, the dog. Like, okay, okay. Sorry. not the not the, the not the man. But there's a think. there's there's insurrection yes. because of the the relationship between between him and and the indigenous people. Maybe he employs or in the in the in the in the, in the area. And and so these but these things are all just kind of like flitting around in the background. Um, and um, I think it's interesting that Quran, you know, wants he wants it to be there, but but it's not the forefront of the story. I think he's telling. At least that's the way I see it. Well, I think not just not the forefront, but the 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 read I took is that Leo chose to not have that be part of her everyday life. So, you know, she she and and her fellow employee, um, you know, they they could have talked about that kind of thing. Uh, but but they didn't. You know, it's 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 only when she she saw her friend uh, in 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 the country that she got a little glimpse of that. But you know, Cleo made made no effort to 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 be part of that struggle. You know, that connects to to something we were talking about earlier that that some of these relationships of injustice are just totally transparent. Just everyone takes them for granted. And and I think that that's 
that's part of it. You know, it, it's that, you know, presumably as a result of having so few options, uh, it, it, it's not like Leo at that moment was, you know, secretly fighting to subvert the structure. You know, she was just navigating yeah. within yeah. from one moment to the next. The, the other place where actually this comes up is, is for me uses the word servant towards her in as like almost a slur. And I do think that's kind of interesting that, that he almost looks down on her decision to, um, to fill that role. Uh, where, whereas his, his decision, he plays a similar role, interestingly enough, because he, you know, is training with this, you know, martial arts group, which end up, but they end up being used as paramilitary, you know, people for the government to suppress. So he ends up being a a kind of midwife to the to the man, right, in his own way. But he doesn't see it that way. He sees what she does. He sort of looks down on the domestic work she's doing. Um the relate or not just domestic, but it's the relationship that she has to the family. He looks down on that. And we get another sense of how fine grained this sort of like the the sort of caste system or the structure is to this and then when he, when she's spending time with her friends in the country and they take her downstairs or she's hanging up she's hanging out with the and new year's with with um with her she's, employees yeah, family she's like watching the kids watching the kids and then she goes downstairs to hang out with some of the other employees and maybe just like local people in the area i don't know i don't yeah and they they make some reference about like fancy city nannies City nannies is what they call them, I think. So even though she's her friend is also an in domestic employee, there is also a distinction between those who go to maybe even the more affluent city um, city families versus being in the countryside. What did you What did you all make of the uh, of the stairs? So you know, two of the most visually arresting scenes in the film are the stairs that lead down to that you know, bar <laughs> where tavern, uh, yeah. people are congregating. And then the stairs lead up to the, uh, to the roof of the home in Mexico city where, where they mm. do the washing. Mm. Uh, do you all think there's any significance to the, to the stairs? Oh, I mean, besides the, the thing Laura was mentioning, I mean, the thing that, that about the rooftop that I think is kind of interesting, here's, here's a thought. And then I want to hear what you think, Augustine. So we often think of stairs where you, when you go up or you go down, you're like ascending the social order or you descend. But I think what's interesting about the stairs in the, in the, in the house is that you ascend the stairs and at the top is more domestic servitude. It's clothes washing. <laughs> so it's like, maybe there's no escape from this, right? It's a symbol that there's no escape from the, the system that, you, that you're in. You can like think you're ascending the stairs because you're out of the countryside being a countryside domestic employee, um, but you're really just doing the same thing in a different place. Now you're washing clothes at the top, but you're still washing clothes. And in both scenes, we get a comment about like tumbling or falling too. Because when we see when we see um, Cleo washing, she's worried about about the kids because they're running around. I think Pepe and Paco are are playing, and she's like, "Don't go near the edge. Your mom does not want you up here because it's not." a very safe area for them to play because there's not 
secured railings for the domestic servant the domestic employees to just go up and wash and when we go down the stairs her friend makes like a joke like don't fall down with that belly because it's a huge staircase with no railings <laughs> like in both cases the the sort of specter of of falling is is raised what did you think augustine i'm curious i didn't even really notice this or think about it so yeah i'm curious what you think so i noticed both scenes just because i thought they were so Beautiful. Mm-hmm. I, I, you know, I thought those were just glorious moments of cin- cinematography, but I was unable to to associate like solid metaphors uh, with them. Uh, so, um, you know, I maybe it's just that you know those are you know pretty amazing stairs, and, <laughs> yeah. and uh, I, I, I just don't know. Yeah, I mean, the the other aspect, the other thing that I think is quite striking, which relates to stairs, is the common motif of or refrain if you may of the airplane now one of these is that one of these sort of reasons for the airplanes constantly overhead is that i guess there's an airport nearby um and where you know Koran grew up there was an airport quite nearby so he was constantly seeing airplanes overhead but of course this has metaphorical significance it has to i mean we're we're showing airplanes in so anytime almost anytime there's a shot of the sky there's an airplane in the sky mm-hmm. and you know you might think that um you might think of it in a similar way where it's like he is somebody who has ascended the stairs via the airplane um and yet he's making this movie like he, he, you know, you, you, you don't escape your own past. Like it's, it's part of you. You can't like run away from it. You have mm-hmm. to, you can, t- you can get on a plane and go to the U S and be a famous U S filmmaker, but nonetheless, you're pulled back to this. This is part of who you are. This is the story you have to tell. I mean, Quran himself has said that this was the story. Like he's wanted to tell his whole life in some ways. Like this is, the story his whole career was building towards. And I think it's interesting that he hasn't made a movie in five years. Like, um, uh, you know, I feel like mm-hmm. I'm not sure what he's doing now, but like he, this seemed like a capstone movie for him. But anyway, I was curious if, if the airplane imagery evoked anything for you, uh, Augustine. I mean, I can tell them my thoughts, but I, I will not pretend to, you know, have, anything interesting to contribute. These are, this is just my, my reactions. So I thought, I, I saw the the planes as partly just boasting, you know, I, like, like a way of noting that, you know, not only was the film built on these incredibly long scenes where everything worked to perfection, but on top of that, they were like timed and set <laughs> so that at just the right moment you would get the plane. Yeah. I was like, you know, how how does he do that? Um, so that on the on the one hand, and then on the other hand, as just like true to the experience of being in Mexico City, mm-hmm. that's what I remember it be like. There was always a plane flying by. <laughs> Not not unlike the, way, the Boston area, yeah. <laughs> where oh my there's gosh. always a plane yeah. hammered yeah. by jets. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, sorry, um, sorry. Earlier, we were talking about you know whether there's something you know nostalgic about uh, about you know the Mexico City it portrayed. You know, it, it's worth stressing that it's not exactly that I liked the say the street vendors mm-hmm. or the you know out of town 
bands or the you know street sellers with with those whistles or the planes flying by i so it for, for me the experience wasn't of or wasn't always oh my god this beautiful thing that disappeared yeah it, it, it was more just ah that it could be recreated so perfectly yeah well it is a remarkable film on many levels and i think we've we've kind of knocked you know knocked on a few of those levels i mean i think it's a film that I hope to revisit many more times um, in the future. Augustine, I was curious if just as a final sort of, you know, question, um, you know, when we were thinking about this and you had mentioned Tarkovsky and, and so on, I'm curious if this film, I mean, obviously this film has more personal resonance for you than, than the Tarkovsky ones, but I'm curious, like, yeah, do you feel like uh, Roma has has is is kind of at that level, uh, or or maybe exceeding it uh, for you in in your mind? I I love that question. I mean, I I will attempt to answer it, although with some embarrassment, because it's been it must be you know at least twenty years since I've actually seen a ah. Tarkovsky film, and also you know these you know there is expertise around these issues that I lack. But, you know, here's just like a totally um, amateurish knee-jerk reaction to that question. I think that in terms of the capacity to recreate the Eneric uh, and, you know, sheer beauty, no. I mean, Droma is, is a masterpiece, but, but you know, it, it's very hard to, to, you know, get to stalker nostalgia. I, you know, those films, you know, they're, they're just... They're remarkable uh, along those lines. But I, I think that Droma has something, at least for me, that the um, Tarkovsky films don't have, which is that it just, it feels like it, it has a story to tell that's tighter and more personal and, and I, and I do worry that, um, I, I forget the quote, but Tim Williamson has this quote about how, you know, some philosophers confuse, uh, you know, muddy waters with depth. Yeah. Um, <laughs> you know, with, with Tarkovsky, I, I always worry a little bit about whether there's really nothing there. Yeah. Uh, whereas with Roma, there's no such worry. I, I feel like, you know, there's there's just this incredible story being told and, and it's there and you can see it. So I think in that respect, Roma is just a superior uh, film, e even though it doesn't create the kind of magic that Tarkovsky can sometimes create. Yeah. I know exactly what you mean. There's something about like, as soon as the more hard edges you put on something, which allows you to get a grip on it, uh, it's, it's almost like it loses that poetry. And so you, it like almost exactly. has to have that elusive, you can't quite pin it down. And then it's sort of more poetic and Tarkovsky. Exactly. Kind of the exactly. Of Whereas Guadon is able to put uh, hard edges. Yeah. Uh, like the, the, there's, it, it, every it's not just the cinematography like everything about the film is crystal clear yeah mm -hmm. and 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 yet it, it you know achieves such greatness yeah so you know that yeah that's right that's exactly right augustine thank you so much for being here and joining us and at this point we would have you plug something but i i'm not i don't want to presume but i i i suspect there's nothing you want to plug social media wise or anything to plug probably not <laughs> you mean like what would i plug a philosophy paper or? yeah yeah or <laughs> yeah. Uh, you have a paper coming out on tarkovsky <laughs> 
<laughs> no, no, yeah. no. <laughs> we, yeah, <laughs> sometimes not. you know we'll we'll have yeah. our guests sort of share their Twitter account, but I you're not on. No, Twitter, no, no. Yes. There's no, no. You no, just no direct them account, to no, the no. Shas website. That's right, to the Shas website. And um, <laughs> but thank you so much for being here, Augustine. This was a real pleasure. And we are Cow's Pod on Twitter. You can find us on the web at cowspod.wordpress.com. And in two weeks, we'll be talking about a movie very much the opposite in many ways of this movie. We'll be talking about The Phantom Menace with podcast impresario Matt Teichman. See you then. Bye. 